Hello, my name is Mike Milliard. I'm editor of Healthcare IT News, and welcome to the first of a series of podcast interviews with leaders and innovators from across healthcare and beyond. Our chat today is with Michael Rogers. Michael is a journalist and a futurist, and later this month, on October 22nd, he'll offer the opening keynote at the HIMSS Big Data and Healthcare Analytics Forum in Boston. Michael's not just a futurist, but a practical futurist, as he calls himself, keeping focused on how emerging trends in technology and economics will impact culture and human nature. Among his many career achievements, Michael launched Newsweek's technology column, served for a decade as vice president of the Washington Post Company's new media division, and most recently completed a two-year stint as futurist-in-residence for the New York Times. In Boston, he'll home in on healthcare, offering his take on what he says is a bright future driven by technology and data. I spoke with Michael recently, and we discussed the prospects for artificial intelligence, precision medicine, telehealth, and much more. Amid all this technological change, he also offered his perspective for keeping the human element as the guiding principle for healthcare. He also offered a surprising prediction for the potential single-payer healthcare. So here's our chat with practical futurist Michael Rogers. One thing I'm interested in from, you know, from the point of view of what you do every day is kind of what goes into and how does one be a futurist? You know, what are the things that you look at to kind of do your prognostications and formulate your, your ideas about how things are going to play out? You know, clearly it's not a, uh, a you know, misty crystal ball or anything like that. I'm sure you look at data and, and trends and, you know, what, are, what, what, what makes you a futurist? How does that work? <laughs> um, well, you know, I don't think anyone starts out necessarily to be a futurist, although I guess you can actually take classes in being a futurist now. Really? Uh, but for me, it was, yeah, actually, there's a university in Texas that has a program in futurism, and someone has told me that in Australia, it's possible to get a doctorate in futurism, which really struck me as odd. Why Australia? But of course, you know, they're the first ones over the dateline, so true. maybe it's a natural resource for them. But... Um, you know, you probably have seen my bio. Uh, I spent, ended up with sort of both sides of my brain in operation, being both a fiction writer and then um, studying physics, yeah. trying to get my engineering degree. So, you know, when I ended up in the media world, that's when I started to work on, you know, what was back then called new media for the Washington Post Company and for Newsweek and then for the New York Times. And that's what got me very interested in thinking about the future, was watching how, you know, it was really quite possible to make some reasonable estimates out eight to ten years based on technology uh, and demographics. You can predict those things pretty well these days. Um, You know, if you're reading the trade journals, uh, you know, in 2004 at the New York Times, we knew that in ten years – mobile devices were going to be the primary way of uh, absorbing the news. You could just look at where the bandwidth was going, where screen technology was going, uh, and sort of connect those dots. Uh, The interesting thing is, to me, how you bring that kind of vision back into the the larger, uh, into the the enterprise, uh, which... I think in the media world, we had some successes. Uh, I think the New York Times is on a, a decent path now. We had a lot of failures, though, and what went wrong in terms of how we adapted to the future. Sometimes it's just a business model. It's not going to work at all. Um, other times, I think it's clinging too much to uh, models that worked in the past. 
And so, you know, uh, I basically 10 years ago started my own practice, a practical futurist, because I want to emphasize that, you know, I'm not interested in flying cars. I'm interested in things that will actually happen. Uh, flying cars may happen too, but we've been promised them since 1958. So well, it's kind of shocking how fast uh, self-driving cars seem to be happening. Yeah, and you know that's that's another interesting example of um, something I always say, which is never uh, mistake a clear view for a short distance. Uh, autonomous vehicles right now are probably at the top of the hype curve. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I do a lot of work with insurance companies. And the insurance companies are watching this with very dubious eyes. First of all, you know, insurers are really interesting. I mean, they have genuinely started to think about the future in ways that a lot of companies don't. Yeah. Which is interesting because traditionally the insurance industry based itself on actuarial tables and historical data, and they're coming to realize that you know, in a world of climate change and uh, you know, automated vehicles, the past is not as relevant anymore. Right. So they've actually think about the future a lot, and they think a lot about already, you know, how will they make money in the world of autonomous vehicles? And they've got that piece figured out. Uh, but the current state of autonomous vehicles, you know, it's interesting to watch. Every state in the union is sort of struck, doing their best to lower the bar for allowing autonomous vehicles on their roads, you know, <clears throat> hopes that that will bring Google and Apple money. Yeah. But the insurance companies say, well, you can make them legal all you want, but we're not going to insure them until <laughs> they're really safe. And, uh, so in an odd driver, way – I'm glad that they <laughs> – yeah. Yeah. Saying that. The insurance companies of the world increasingly are becoming the regulators of new technology. Well, uh, speaking of in insurers – In an odd way. Because, yes, you know, clearly in healthcare, uh, is more than perhaps anywhere, you know, predict predictive analytics are um, key to to them, you know, being able to do their job well. And you know, we were talking about business models earlier. Um, healthcare, to its credit, has tried to change its business model. You know, it's 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 happening sort of in fits and starts. But we've moved from this kind of you know fee for service to to, to value based care, and that seems to be the the main thrust of where things are going these days. So when you look at you know the, the halting steps we've been taking over the past decade or so. Um, how do you see the future of healthcare? I mean, is, is it bright? Is it still, you know, murky and to be determined? And how, you know, what are some of the factors that will, you know, impact how that plays out? I think in looking at the big data revolution, the digital transformation, what I say, what I often call in general the virtualization of the world, the movement of more and more into the cybersphere, Healthcare is in the place that uh, it, it's one of the uh, disciplines that I think is going to benefit the most. It's, you know, the IT is just going to transform it. And, and I have to say, just in time in the United States, because the wheels are falling off. <laughs> and we don't seem to be able to fix, uh, you know, some of the systemic issues that are creating inefficiencies. Um, IT has come along just in time. And you know, I think is going to be is going to be what transforms uh, the overall healthcare delivery system. And I mean, one this is a delicate joke in uh, in health insurance circles, but I like to say that you know, the United States may well have a single payer system in another ten years. 
uh, and it'll be called Amazon. Uh, uh, because that, I think, is the overall direction that data, that A, economics, and B, data is driving us, is increased verticalization of, of healthcare delivery. So that services are really much more linked together. And are they, you know, linked together under the rubric of Amazon Health and, you know, uh, CVS everywhere? Uh, or, uh, you know, is it something less formal than that? But th there's going to be much more of a vertical connection between insurance, between pharmacy benefit management, uh, between the providers, uh, and then also in wellness, uh, because we will... To, to make sense, to make, you know, the economic sense of this business, uh, you know, the, the old saying, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Yep. Uh, I think that that's finally coming to be true here. And, you know, payers, providers, suppliers, pharmacies, you know, they're going to have to work together to squeeze out cost at every level of service. So I like to say the mantra of the future will be low-cost delivery, quantified outcomes, maximized quality. And that's really what big data is giving us. To your point you know, earlier. You want to, oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say to your point earlier about, you know, the Amazons and the CVS of the world suddenly. I mean, I've been writing about health IT for almost 10 years now. And when I started, the companies we wrote about were the Cerners and the Epics, and, you know, we still write about them constantly, of course, but they were the clinically focused hospitals, you know, physician practice technology, you know. It just seems like the past couple years, really, that these big, you know, consumer companies, Google's, Amazon's, Apple's, um, are really changing the game in a way that I, I wouldn't have predicted even five years ago, I would think, and that they had tried, and, you know, even Google and Microsoft had had some failures in trying to break into the healthcare market. They clearly seem to be the ones that are going to be shaping how things play, um, and I think that's good when we're talking about like a human, you know, a human fact because those companies deal with humans on a day-to-day -day basis in every, you know, on their day-to-day -day lives, not the ten percent that are spent in the doctor's office. So I, I'm, maybe I'm, uh -huh. you know, rambling here, but I, do you know what I'm saying? I think it might be good for the human uh, element that they, those guys might be the ones that are changing and driving the conversation. Fair to say? Yes. Yeah, it's funny. I'm I'm with you on. I remember looking at the Google and the Microsoft efforts because I was five. You know, back then I was going go go go. Somebody's got to get you know EHRs going and create some more you know acceptance of digital standards and transfer of information. Somebody's got to do it. You guys go do it. Yeah. So I was disappointed when it didn't go forward, but of course the Amazons of the world and Apples of the world have the network effect going for them. You know, Metcalf's law, the value of the network grows as a square of the number of people attached to it. And so as, as soon as they start to build their networks, it's, uh, you know, it, it'll, it'll move very, very quickly, I think. And the other piece that's just good historical timing, of course, is that we are in a, in kind of converging on the use of digital standards in in medical data, right? I mean, at least you know we're we're moving in that direction. Most of the standards have been set. Adoption is still you know a, a question, but we're getting to that tipping point where you better use these standards, uh, or you're going to be cut out of the system. Uh, yeah. And you know you can't 
emphasize how important digital standards are to, as I say, transmitting data efficiently between these various layers. Uh, you know, when I talk about the various layers, you, you could just, you know, sometimes I, I imagine, you know, if you want to think of a scenario that uh, 10 years from now, we, you know, don't, we, especially young people, don't think about health insurance. They think about health memberships, right? Right. And you just buy into Amazon Health, and it covers, you know, access to traditional health care, wellness, fitness, nutrition, pharmaceuticals, uh, unlimited virtual consultations, something like that. And, you know, it, you, you, so you end up with you know, one, one place where all your data is. You know, you could imagine even down to the level of, uh, you know, if you let uh, Whole Foods uh, track what you were buying, it could be, you know, your nutrition could be part of your uh, uh, your ongoing um, health care record. So yep. fitness, you know, uh, fitness, for example, you know, in the health insurance industry, there, you know, was some enthusiasm about wellness programs, uh, you know, where you get a discount on your premium if you uh, adhere to certain wellness things, wellness routines, uh, which kind of worked, although I think most of the insurers I deal with now are not that that sanguine about the outcome of wellness programs. But with the rise of, you know, all of these sensor wearable sensors, again, you could imagine 10 years out that an Amazon... Uh, health insurance subscription might include the some sensors that you use in your fitness programs that feed back into a system that, first of all, coaches you on what you can be doing better for wellness. And a lot of that would be driven by AI, of course, uh, but might also then get you extra points <laughs> that you can turn in. Uh, you can cash in the extra points for, you know, cosmetic procedures like Botox. <laughs> yep. so there's just so many possibilities here when you've got access to data all up and down the sort of the vertical chain. Let's talk about AI a little bit, uh, which is another aspect of technology that seems to be evolving at a uh, exponential pace. And we, we know that technology has upsides and, and downsides. Um, do you see it as, as a net positive, or are there some things that concern you about the rise of AI in healthcare? Uh, it's 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 very much, I think, a net positive, uh, particularly machine learning. It's, it's pretty clear now that uh, computers, you know, through machine learning, we can extract information from data that sometimes a human could not have pulled out. And again, as we begin to be able to mix in genomic data, uh, you know, possibly nutrition, fitness data. It, the, it's going to be very, very powerful. The, the piece that is of concern is the black box question. Uh, and, you know, people have already seen this, and, and by that I mean this thing sits there and spits out diagnoses or, uh, you know, programs of treatment. We don't really know why it's doing that. And, and I think that is a real concern, uh, but as 
if you follow the IT industry, you know there's a number of startups that are now focused on um, the whole question of how do you explicate how an algorithm arrived at a conclusion. And it's very clear that that's going to be required in some applications like finance and granting loans and probably criminal justice uh, that where machine learning uh, is going to be used ultimately almost for sure. Uh, but uh, we need to know what are the factors that went into this. So, you know, as a journalist, you probably know uh, that company in Chicago that did, uh, oh, I'm blanking on their name right now. Um, I've worked with them before. But anyway, one of the first companies that did automated journalism that created programs that could take in, you know, sports data and then generate sports stories. For yeah, it's the automated them. journalism that I'm worried about. But, uh... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and that's getting better. But what's interesting is I, I think they may have taken that as far as they can because yeah. uh, what they've done now is they're going to adopt that uh, for uh, explaining what AI does. They are really shifting from journalism to um, explaining it as a front end for AI. Because I think what they figured out was there's actually not that much money in journalism anyway, but the front end for AI in finance, criminal justice, medicine, now that's, that's a marketplace. Yeah. So it's called scientific narrative, um, something like that. Anyway, um, but there, so, so I think that that's a real concern uh, that we put on top of the traditional security and privacy concerns. But um, I, I have to say, I think people are recognizing that very early in the game this time, uh, that that's that's a uh, social hot button and, and doing the right things to sort of get around it. Mm-hmm. And believe me, I am not usually that optimistic about new technology's impact on, uh, on, on much of society. I think it, but I think in medicine, there's just so much more to be gained uh, than to be lost. And the things that can be lost, we already understand what they are. Um, well, what about the radiologist? You know, what about the radiologist who's afraid that uh, you know some machine learning program is going to come for his job in a few years? Do you... uh, he <clears throat> he's not alone. I mean, that it, it, when we you know, I have to say that I think white collar automation is a, a huge problem. Yeah. Uh, often in financial audiences, I talk about this that this is is going to be one of the big issues of the twenties. Uh, and we're already seeing it in in white collar areas like law, advertising, accounting, particularly for younger workers. The stuff that the young associates at law firms used to do is now much better done by computer and much more cheaply. Yeah. Big firms are already saying, "Huh, what do we do with our young associates before they're ready to to face clients?" That's going to be true across every industry. Uh, and you know that that's a separate speech unto itself. But what I come up with in the end is there will be lots of jobs in the future, good jobs, important jobs. The question is really going to be who pays you to do those jobs. Yeah. And my example would be young lawyers. Right now, huge epidemic of under and unemployment with young lawyers. You know, last year. 
they started suing their law schools uh, for misleading them about the profession. But the fact is we need lawyers. There's lots of openings for lawyers, uh, potentially, uh, in things like being a public defender. People languish in jail all over the country <laughs> because there aren't enough public defenders. So there's jobs, oh, there's uh, a doctor shortage but too. we don't. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. And skilled we nursing. just don't yeah, so, yeah. haven't figured out the way to, to, to pay for them. Right. And um, so, so that's my answer to that. And that, of course, gets into, as I'm sure you've, you've seen, the, the larger question of income redistribution and automation taxes and stuff that I think we're going to have to deal with uh, as we get into the, the 20s. But that's a good question. Maybe Jeff Bezos will um, have to step it, up a little yep. bit more as, if Amazon's going to be as dominant as, as we're predicting. But yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Hopefully he will pay his radiologists better than he pays his warehouse workers. Yeah, let's hope. Yeah. Uh, what about precision medicine? Uh, that's another area, obviously, that we'll be talking about in Boston. Um, clearly some major leaps and bounds going on when it comes to genomics and you know cellular therapies. <clears throat> Uh, I think that's one area where perhaps the science may be outpacing technology's ability to um, help manage it in a hospital setting, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see that? Yes. I've, I've followed genomics for a long time. Um, and like a lot of people who studied physics, I realized, oh my gosh, I missed all of the stuff that I thought was soft, squishy science, biology, but it's actually really important. Yeah. So, so I... Like any good writer, I decided to write a book on molecular genetics <laughs> as my way of learning about it. So I followed it really closely. And I think what we've seen year after year at each breakthrough, uh, now, of course, we're in uh, the, the CRISPR days. But if you go all the way back to the, the 70s and read about it, there were enormous hopes for recombinant DNA and what we were going to be able to do. And we genuinely thought at that point that we had all these potential therapeutics that were going to come online, you know, in the 80s. And it turned out that nature is much more complicated than we thought. <laughs> and it keeps happening that way. Monoclonal antibodies were going to fix everything. Well, they have a place. But if you look back at the initial thrills about it, it it's, it's similar to CRISPR. And CRISPR is really important, and uh, it is indeed a big step forward. But it, think I, for me, over the next decade... Uh, the real impact in genomics is going to be the information that it provides for precision medicine, not for direct gene-based therapeutics, because those have always turned out to be more complicated than we thought. And you run into all of the regulatory issues, uh, you know, beginning with human experimentation and going on from there. just traditionally, we have found, I think, that investment in biotech, uh, while it, you know, there's there's a pot of money for for drug development and there's a pot of money for uh, developing uh, gene-based uh, therapies, but the real investment that's safe is gene-based diagnostics um, and ultimately precision medicine based on genomics. So I think that's going to be the initial impact. And, and that's something that doesn't require, um, you know, fundamental breakthroughs in how we manipulate genes in, in human beings. Uh, it can, you know, shed light on everything from nutrition to the, you know, targeted pharmaceuticals. 
So, so that to me is where genomics is going to come in and be very important. Uh, you know, I think the early experience of 23andMe, uh, when they began to, to do, do their social network where you could sign up and have, um, you know, be in a discussion group with people who had the same um, SNPs as you did, uh, you know, there were actual therapy suggestions that came out of that as people got together and all had, for example, the same kind of psoriasis and discovered that for all of them with the same SNPs, uh, there was one therapy that worked best. You know, that, that came out of just people talking on a social network linked by their, uh, their single nucleotide polymorphism patterns. And, you know, SNPs are a very primitive form of gene analysis. So I think that the possibilities are huge. I think that it may not necessarily, though, be in so-called genetic surgery. Uh, it'll be in, in adapting current medicine to work much better. What's your take on uh, blockchain, another thing that is at the peak of the hyper, hype curve right now? Um, do you think it's going to be as transformative as some people seem to think it will be, or maybe a flash in the pan? Uh, the difficulty with blockchain, I was just at a conference on blockchain uh, last week and the security issues around blockchain. And the difficulty with blockchain, particularly in areas like uh, finance and medicine, although it's, I think it's, it's worse in medicine in many ways because of the privacy issue uh, on top of the security issue, the difficulty with blockchain right now is it's so young as a technology and is still evolving so quickly that uh, you know we don't really know how to control the security risks. It is not necessarily inherently more insecure, although it's necessary, of course, for blockchain to work for uh, every machine to have access to the blockchain uh, in order to update it. Uh, in theory, that that may create a higher security risk, but, but in fact, it's probably workable. The difficulty is it's just such a moving target. And so uh, blockchain may have some limited applications at this point, but, um, you know, I don't think, I think it'll be another five or ten years before people are really comfortable working with it in, you know, big industrial-scale privacy-driven kinds of environments. Well, we're nearing the top of the hour, but maybe just, you know, final question. What are some other areas that perhaps you're most excited about, the use cases that you think are most ripe for innovation, and perhaps some thoughts on limitations or, or caution signs that might, you know, slow us down uh, on the way of reaching that potential? Uh, one thing I'm interested in is the extension of telemedicine yeah. to uh, actual you know, much more diagnostic kinds of procedures. And I know a couple venture capital companies that are working on essentially what are diagnostic booths, uh, six by eight foot rooms uh, that have, you know, a very large telemedicine, very large screen for the physician consultation, but also a series of uh, devices that can, can do a lot of sort of the, you know, basic sign uh, uh, measurements of things, you know, everything from blood pressure to uh, respiratory health, et cetera, et cetera. 
that you could set up in drugstores or you could set these up in schools or in factories and it would be a way to deliver really basic health care at a low price. And I think, you know, that key, that to me the really big question for health care is going over the the next decade is going to be what belongs in the virtual world, what belongs in the real world, and how do you connect between them? And I think we may well find that in healthcare, surprisingly, more ends up in the virtual world than, than we would expect. <laughs>